Ramsgate and today I'm going to talk about one of my book projects which is known by the working title at the moment as The Books of Lucas. When I tell people that I have a book series called The Books of Lucas I usually get three questions in no particular sequence. The first question is who is or was Lucas? I can dispose of that one fairly quickly by saying Lucas is not a person. The next question then becomes one of, okay, so if Lucas is not a person, what the hell is or was Lucas? To which the answer is that Lucas is actually a place. Lucas is a small tourist town on the south coast of a Greek island whose name begins with C and ends in E. Like just about everything else in the books of Lucas, the town does not exist. I invented it. And because I invented it, I can call it what I like, and I came up with the name Lucas after some careful research. The town may or may not bear resemblance to certain other towns on the south coast of the island whose name begins with C and ends in E, but I couldn't possibly comment further on that subject. One of the challenges, of course, of inventing a town and inventing lots of other things associated with the town is that you end up asking yourself, what does this town look like? And you end up thinking, hmm, maybe I need a map. The map of Lucas that I'm using for the book was actually drawn on a piece of scrap paper by the bar lady at the Blue Sea Cafe and Restaurant, which is off of Carperi on the main seafront of Lucas. The map was drawn as she explained the town to one of the main characters in the books. The map is actually shown in a reduced resolution form on my website at rupertramsgate.com. If you look up and search on the word Lucas, you will find an article about the town of Lucas which includes the map. The third question that I'm often asked about Lucas when people realise that it is a series of six books, is that people want to know if it's anything like the Bible, which, as we all know, is a series of sort of related books to greater or lesser degree. Currently, three books of Lucas are in varying stages of completion. Three books are sketched, and in the Grand Hollywood style, there is also a prequel, which is only partially sketched. There are no deities in the books of Lucas, but there is the presence of a mythical deity from many, many hundreds of years ago in the past, and that deity influences the behaviour and activities of many of the characters in the books of Lucas. There are no floods, famine, pestilence or plagues, well, unless you count drunken tourists. 
There are no murders of firstborn, there are no miracles, parting of seas, wandering in the wilderness or destruction of cities in the books of Lucas. There are no prophets, no immaculate conceptions and no acts of unspeakable violence. There are a lot of ethereal, aquatic and sometimes carnal goings-on, however. Some people undergo what could loosely be defined as a religious experience, but not the kind one usually sees or hears in a church or other location of Christian worship. It just so happens that a tourist writer visited Lucas several years before our main character arrives in the town, and he wrote a, an appreciation of Lucas. And it just so happens that that article landed on my desk several years ago. So I think the best thing I can do is to read it so that you can understand a bit more about the town of Lucas. So here we go. It's uh, four pieces of paper. You'll hear the paper rustling in the true, you know, authentic paper reading and paper shuffling fashion. So let's, let's see what we can find out about Lucas. The article is called Lucas, an Appreciation by Kirk Hallam. Lucas, according to the stone in the entrance to the Church of Our Saviour, was founded in 1788. But, like all history, this is a matter of debate. A historian from Heraklion determined in 2020 that the likely date of first settlement was in fact 1854. But the local residents claim that cannot be true. How could their ancestors be wrong? The historian was given a polite hearing and then dismissed as merely an expert, especially by the local Orthodox priest. Lucas, for the first 150 years of its life, was a small, sleepy backwater, a town that until 1935 did not even have a proper road connecting it to the north, from which people, goods and money would flow. Until that year, the road, such as it was, comprised a winding dirt track running through the mountains. In the winter, parts of the road would be impassable due to snow. In the spring, it would be impassable due to landscapes caused by melting snow and spring rains. So even getting to Lucas by road was a hit or miss affair. It was a multi-day journey of discovery. And as the history of human exploration shows, not all journeys of discovery have happy endings. Along the way, numerous non-motor and motor vehicles disappeared off the road down steep slopes into ravines, canyons and gorges. As a result, most of the traffic into and out of Lucas was by boat. Lucas, according to the elderly locals, was a harbour with a small village attached. It was also, according to the more cynical locals, a small drinking town with a fishing problem. The harbour was the focus of commercial and transport activity. Fishing boats landed all manner of fish daily, from baskets of small pan-fry anchovies up to massive swordfish and tuna weighing hundreds of kilos. The sea was, it seemed, the go-to place for food. Other boats would shuttle along the south coast carrying goods, animals and occasionally visitors. Within ten years, two events occurred that would ensure that Lucas would never really be the same again and that it would no longer be a haven of tranquil, oceanside innocence. First, the metalled road from the north opened. It used part of the old horse and mule carriage route, but also took its own route, including several new bridges and even a short stretch of tunnel. 
Now the first motor vehicles began to arrive in Lucas, changing the town almost immediately. The local road cobblestone installers had to learn how to lay the black stuff, or concrete paving, or go out of business. Slowly, piles of horse and mule dung at street corners disappeared to be replaced by the faint odour of petrol. Secondly, and much more dramatically, in 1941, during the Second World War, the entire island was invaded by Germany. However, it was not really occupied. The Germans had no trouble with the north of the island, linked from west to east by a long straight road. However, when they tried pushing through to Lucas and other southern towns, they suddenly found themselves in highly unfamiliar mountain territory, where, with regularity, their convoys would be ambushed by a collection of unknown insurgents who would appear out of nowhere, shoot the shit out of them, and then vanish, seemingly into thin air. Lucas became a focus for local resistance against the Germans, with resistance members going about superficially normal daily lives while sneaking out at intervals to ambush the occupiers. Along the way, several local people were captured, tortured, and in at least one case, executed by the Germans. Eventually, at the end of 1944, with English and US troop convoys heading towards the island, the Germans fled to the north, attempted to evacuate their garrison, and then many of them ended up surrendering. After the war, for close to 30 years, Lucas went back to being a small, sleepy fishing town at the end of a long and winding road. The road might be scenic, but it was still slow, three hours' drive from the north of the island. A single-track, badly metalled, badly lit road, and with tightening radius curves and no safety barriers, it was also dangerous. This deterred all but local people and smart visitors from making the journey. In the late 1960s, however, the hippies arrived. Drawn to the south of the island by its rugged coastline, scenic beauty, lack of regular tourists and low prices, backpackers began to show up. They hitched, bussed and walked along the coast, staying in cheap accommodations and sometimes sleeping on the beach. They caused consternation among the locals by smoking fragrant different sorts of substances and occasionally running naked up and down beaches and in and out of the ocean. The local people soon began to regard the hippies as a weird collection of nuisances. Eventually the hippie community fragmented as they dropped back into society and the flood became a trickle. In the early 80s, the Germans again began to discover Lucas. This time, instead of riding down the long winding road in tanks and armoured vehicles, dressed in military uniforms, they arrived in buses and coaches, or on the coastal ferry boat from Panuria, dressed in casual holiday clothing with backpacks and suitcases, and drachmas. Lots of drachmas, which they then spent in and around the town. They marched out onto the east beach at the crack of dawn in organised groups, with just a faint remaining edge of military precision, laid out their chairs, umbrellas and coolers, and sat, read, talked and swam until the mid-afternoon, which point, again, with just that hint of military precision, they would pack up, leave the beach, go back to their accommodations, shower and relax, and then head into town for dinner. This left Lucas with a challenge, a classic challenge for a sleepy coastal town which has been discovered by tourists. How much do you cater to the tourists? 
too much catering to tourists, prices rise, the locals are driven out, and resentments take root. Too little catering, and the disappointed visitors will head elsewhere and take their money with them. There was much local debate. Some of it heated. There were local resentments against outsiders. On this island, even people from Athens were regarded as outsiders by many locals. And the town went through seven, four different mayors in 12 years. Along the way, a lot of the usual mistakes were made. A hotel company persuaded one mayor to support the erection of what became known among the locals as Ashimomeros, translated as Ugly Place, otherwise known as the East Beach Hotel. Erected in a hurry in the early 1980s before anybody in Lucas had gotten around to considering if a 1980s concrete panelled regular box would look good next to whitewashed stone houses. The answer? No. The next mayor, who ran on the nativist-sounding slogan Lucas for Lucas, and announced on being elected that he would get tough on mass tourism, was forced to resign several years later when a local newspaper journalist, digging through an envelope of papers left on his doorstep one night by a sympathetic insider, pieced together the details of a sophisticated heist. It involved a mainland Greek property company, a mysterious man from Heraklion, who suddenly disappeared one day into thin air, never to be seen again, and two women that the mayor was consorting with, who were not his wife. The mayor, it became clear, was in the process of doing a deal to sell a large parcel of land on the west side of the town, which had totally unclear ownership, to a mainland property company, using the man from Heraklion as a cutout. The two women were some sort of scantily clad, walking, talking thank you note from, well, nobody was quite sure, but the list of suspects was a short one. The mayor exited in disgrace, fleeing to Athens. Because of the lack of documentation about the ownership of the land, insufficient hard evidence existed to charge him with any crime, but his life on the island was over. After the years of scandals, the current mayor was elected. Unlike the previous interventionist neophyte, he was wise and is mostly hands-off. He leaves most of the details to the town manager, who is a severe and efficient-looking, very business-like woman named Alexandria, dressed very soberly in business suits, with long graying hair and a ponytail. I met her and found that she was much more pleasant than people had said. Her bark is worse than her bite. Under the mayor's stewardship, new development has been allowed on what has become known as New Lucas, the area overlooking the harbour, with strict zoning regulations in place, and the influx of money, mostly from Germany, has had a trickle-down effect. The importance of fishing slowly declined as the yacht marina was extended, and an outer harbour has been constructed with EU grant money. The locals have mostly come to terms with the presence of the tourists, but they also enjoy the quiet winter months, when only a few people from elsewhere vacation in the town. As the winter storms blow through, the locals refurbish and improve their businesses, catch up on family matters, and um, they drink. Visitors can walk from one end of Lucas to the other in less than 30 minutes, picking their way along the narrow seafront street named Carperi, past the yacht marina, the harbour bar and its nearby restaurants, and the many bars and tavernas that line the street. 
The only remaining eyesore in Lucas is the East Beach Hotel. The hotel, built at the far east end of the main beach, was reskinned with coloured concrete panels in the 2000s in an attempt to make it look more attractive. The end result is really no better. However, it does offer reasonably cheap accommodation, especially in the spring and the fall. Budget travellers might like to consider it. When you walk around in Lucas, you will hear a lot of German being spoken. Irony of ironies, the Germans, once the invading, jack-booted, uniformed enemy, are now the major source of summer revenue for the town. Lucas has adapted to the tourism era well, but has lost little of its charm. After the influx of yachts threatened to overwhelm the harbour a few years ago, a local law was passed to severely limit the number of motorised boats, apart from fishing boats, that can reside in the marina. The law had its roots in a personal local tragedy. It was championed by one of the local residents after, when he was living in Panuria, his next-door neighbour's wife lost her left arm when it was severed by an out-of-control speedboat as she swam in the main bay. Today, the town of Lucas has 1,600 winter residents, with the number of residents doubling to 3,200 or more in the peak of the summer season in early August. The town is small and is still characterful. It has two banks, two churches, a real estate office, a small local government building, a post office, a harbour, a yacht marina, a bus station, a police station with four cells, a supermarket, a liquor store, and numerous accommodations ranging from luxury villas built almost to Monaco high roller standards, down to modest village rooms costing only a few euros a night. There are no chain restaurants, and only one chain garage and filling station at the junction where the long and winding road meets the road to Panuria. Getting to Lucas these days is still a choice between land or sea transport. Lucas is linked to several other south coast towns on the island by ferries. The ferries can carry small road vehicles a handful at a time, to towns which have connections to the outside world. Some tourists bring bicycles or mopeds, which are more useful in the local towns, although the main roads through the mountain are still a death trap for unwary moped and motorbike riders. There is a very good reason why there are so many makeshift stone pile memorials and shrines on the roadsides. The ferry runs east several times a day in the summer, with one trip per day in the winter and in January through February only on Saturdays. Those are the quietest months of the year when the winter storms are common. The road from the north is still twisting, windy and slow. Driving down the road still takes three hours from the North Coast Road near the airport in Heraklion. Locals can do it in just over two hours if they are prepared to floor it and if they know the road. Not knowing the road is the other part of the reason why there are so many roadside shrines. Everybody in Lucas knows almost everybody else, to some extent, although the town has a significant number of transplants from outside of the town, indeed a lot of them are from outside Greece. There are Northern Europeans from Germany and Scandinavia, French and Italians. There are even some older hippies, some of them the children of the Summer of Love generation, former visitors to the beach campsites, now integrated into the little community and mostly running tourist businesses. Many of them originally vacationed in Lucas and came back to live permanently, or in a few cases they showed up one summer and they never left. The Yacht Marina is full in the summer, 
and occasionally yachts end up moored around the other side of the headland or in the East Bay. One constant feature, well known to the locals, is the presence of what many refer to as the Big Cat, a large catamaran with a tall mast from which flutters a flag adorned with mysterious runic script. The catamaran is almost always moored up against the inside wall of the outer harbour, unless it is out taking people on sunset cruises or scuba trips. In the winter, the catamaran is known to disappear for weeks at a time, as it heads, well, nobody quite knows where it heads to. The coast either side of Lucas is not developed. The rugged mountains mean that most of the area is probably never going to be developed. The summer heat is slightly more intense than in the past, but then a few hundred yards away at most lies the clear blue water of the Libyan Sea, sloping south, a cool, soothing haven, with colourful fish of all shapes and sizes going about their aquatic daily business. Lucas awaits those who, like me, actually bother to see what lies at the end of the long and winding road. I would suggest you continue to listen to the future podcasts as I start talking about some of the main characters in Lucas and why they end up in Lucas, what made them go to Lucas, what caused them to arrive in Lucas and what they're planning to do while they're there. Until next time, abiento.